Hello, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sackism. Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, I'm well. I think we're on the edge of maybe some snow on the mountains. I don't know. It smells like snow. Uh, it's getting down, you know, like it's certainly going to get cold enough. I don't know if it will actually do it, but it has that feel. But I'm, I'm, I've got an interesting thing coming up tomorrow. I'm going out to the Sphere in Las Vegas, which mm. some people will know as this sort of strange snow globe thing that has emerged over the Venetian Hotel. And it's a kind of techno thing, you know, new thing deal. And I'm looking forward to what that will, I don't know, deliver or not. Um, and then a, a, a Chinatown adventure. So it could be odd. It could be really exciting and it could be disappointing and it could be both, <laughs> you know? Nice. Nice adventure. I like it. I uh, started my unit on Jurassic Park for the kids. Um, Whoa. We, yeah. We talked about bioengineering today and I started showing them. We got into the weeds a little bit, but I started showing how the mutual back scratching between organizations like the FDA and the EPA and the United States government works, how things get pushed through. And I'm having fun teaching again the end of the last semester i was a little mm, i was disappointed with their reactions to Le Guin and lovecraft uh authors who i thought were really cool so i thought i'd bring in a pop uh a pop novel basically that uh has Crichton at the helm who was a master at sort of blending uh cutting edge science with uh this sort of great uh, thriller story and they're engaged again. So it's cool. That's interesting. That's very, yeah. Michael Crichton was an interesting figure, tragic end. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I think one of the tallest novelists to ever exist. I don't He's know. Six, nine. I, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think that's kind of a weird deal. Um, very interesting. And of course, then you have the, a whole discussion points of the novel Michael Crichton is writer on a page versus mm -hmm. the, the machine franchise that has emerged thereafter. Mm -hmm. um, I just saw on Twitter um, a reference to the Bill Moyer, you know, he's the guy who always interviewed creative and doing mm -hmm. interviewing Ursula Le Guin about the lathe of heaven. Mm -hmm. I think that might be something interesting just to check out if if Paul mm -hmm. Le Guin is in your frame of reference. Um, what was the Michael Crichton novel that he wrote that all of the liberals got so angry about as the climate change? Yes, yes, yes. I read this novel a few uh Actually, now it's been about a month or two since I read it, but it's called State of Fear. Okay. And... Uh, the novel follows uh, a lawyer, an environmental lawyer, who works for a philanthropist. He's kind of his on-call. You know, Crichton always has these billionaire characters who can do whatever they want. That's sort of his mechanism for getting the plot moving. 
And this protagonist uh, is investigating the disappearance and supposed death of this billionaire philanthropist and falls in with a CIA uh, black ops type guy who's totally anti-climate change. And they team up together to stop environmental activists from committing acts of terrorism to engender in the public uh, what they feel is the necessary fear of climate change. So they set bombs on an ice shelf in Antarctica to you know, simulate the melting of the ice caps. Um, they have uh, – oh, what happens in the jungle? Oh, they're trying to start a huge tsunami too, uh, just to kind of to the populace show how the weather is uh, enacting these kind of global catastrophes and people need to pay more attention to climate change. But he goes in in that book on the science of climate change, the questions around climate change, the the money involved in the policies that would quote unquote combat climate change. I love that, but I, I thought that was a a page turning thrill ride and Crichton, by the way, to talk about his writing for as successful as he was for the hundreds of billions of dollars that he made. Crichton on Charlie Rose was very open about saying, I'm not a good novelist. I'm not a good writer. I just work really hard at it. So he knew his limitations too, which I find endearing. I was once on an unforgettable ferry ride from Seattle to the San Juan Islands that was going to be, well, it was a kind of writerly event discussing a few books, but we only got to that one before panic ensued. <laughs> a riot kind of broke out people began frothing at the mouth and there was one woman who i whose name i won't mention but she absolutely went ballistic about that book and the only thing that i could ever bring to mind that was as forceful a performance of female hysteria took me all the way back to my days as a hospital orderly when an obese woman got trapped in her private bathroom in the nude and could not get out. And I was put in a situation, fortunately not alone, because I'm not stupid. I called for backup as they do in police procedurals. And I remember squirting lubricant on this hysterical woman to, to get her wedged through the small you know, doorway of her bathroom mm -hmm. to get back undercover. Undercover was important for her and her dignity, but for all of us and our sense of dignity, because mm -hmm. it was absolutely bizarre to say, but this, absolutely bizarre adventure across uh from seattle to san juan 
to Orcas Island, I think we was the final destination. I think we were going to the Rosario Resort. I think that was the gig. And the idea was to discuss several authors um, and kind of have a, a floating book club and, and a catered one. Um, and I was just sort of a, a gamekeeper, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but no one could get past that Crichton book. Uh, <laughs> the anger and, and the the just the horror of it was so great. And I don't know, I can't remember anything of that equivalent short of the David Mamet piece, mm -hmm. The Village Voice, when he broke ranks with the Democratic left and became, you know, a pretty powerful uh, Jewish conservative voice in America. Mm -hmm. And... Mm -hmm. What well, somehow do you remember when was the what was the year of that Crichton book? Uh so Crichton's book it was so he died in 2017. No, let me see. State of Fear publish date. Look it up. It was pretty close to his death. 2004. I think it was 2007 that he died, actually. Wait, when did Michael Crichton die? So Crichton died in two thousand. This would have had to have been in like two thousand and nine or ten for me. That that this mm -hmm. this event happened. He was he was dead. He died on November fourth, two thousand and eight. So he died okay. four years after State of Fear, and then I believe uh, Dragon's Teeth and Prey were posthumous. I think those were his two posthumous novels. Okay. Um, but yeah, so he he was alive. It was so funny too because I uh, assigned a, an article from Vanity Fair to my kids uh, leading up to Jurassic Park because I thought that the Vanity Fair article did a good job of going over Crichton's entire career. It was uh, the occasion was that Dragon's Teeth was being posthumously released, but. The article itself had a lot of good info, and they devote a full two pages to State of Fear. And one of the quotes is from Steven Spielberg, who says, uh, well, I feel like Michael, I feel like when Michael wrote that book, the science wasn't as settled as it is now. And as you know from my COVID adventure, whenever I hear that the science has been settled, my alarm goes up. I'm with you, brother. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah, what is the science being settled? settled? That's the whole point of science. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but um, all right, cool. So do you have a band and an aphorism for us today? I do. Okay. Our, our, our band is um, called Harmful Content. Yeah. And they are militantly non-musicians. They are samplers. They are samplers. They are people who um sorry, I'm just disclosing or just eh, people want to get through to me. Um okay. Harmful content. They are samplers. Their album is called Compliance. Their notion is a musical version of 
a trope that we often see in the media, little clickbait stuff of vintage ads that were completely acceptable once that you would never see again, that we just can't deal with. Well, what they do is they sample music from the past that was all completely acceptable once, but is no longer. <laughs> And mm -hmm. they sample that in with people's responses to it. And they do end up making it musical because you, you've got a kind of a groove box thing. I, I've been checking this out myself musically. You know, it is, it is so challenging today to make music, really, mm -hmm. uh, that has any electronic or MIDI framework that isn't just kind of pure AI and pure borrowing and pure, you know, where's the originality? I'm working really hard on that. So I'm making my own instruments more and more. I'm not looping. I'm, I'm, you know, if it's, uh, if it's trance music, well, I'm playing it or my group, you know, we're playing it the whole way through because that's the idea of it, you know, stay fit. Stay, you know, if it's a seven-minute piece, play seven minutes. If it's a nine-minute, you know, don't just go, to, you know, don't get 30 seconds right and then loop it forever. Fuck that. I'm starting to hate this looping uh, culture of EDM and electronic music generally. I just, I can't deal with it. Play something, beat something, stroke something, lick something, Make music with your body, not with your machinery. So their deal is radically, radically different. And yet also something kind of the same. But compliance is their theme. And their underlying notion is that, why did all these fun songs that had so much sexiness to them? that had so much social appeal that brought people together. You know, it's all now outlawed. And now we've got a culture of young people who never meet anybody real until they've swiped them a few times and had 20 million text messages. And I mean, I really despair of young people's sex. I'm not interested in, you know, I mean, people say, well, well, what about hot young people? I go. Which well, ones? There, there aren't, aren't any. any. Yeah. There aren't any. And I'm, I'm very age appropriate and careful as you know, as a teacher. And I also just personally, I mean, I, there's a cutoff point, you know, I mean, you just got to just roll with that. Well, you but start I'm to see, you start to see these kids as, as, as children, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't and not just children, you know, in a legal sense, but children in a pathetic sense, you know, exactly. They're That's not what I mean. children, you know, yeah. they're not really. Well, I think you and I are talking about, you know, people well past puberty, so they're mm -hmm. not children, but they, they're certainly not adults, and they're certainly not uh, targets of romantic or lustful interest. In my view, I, I think they're just doomed. I don't even know Same. why they would. I mean, you know, it's just it, it's so sad. So, 
the idea is the sampling version of the ads and the ethics and the sexual morality that of yesteryear that was working at least so well because it at least some some biz got done you know i'm not sure any biz is getting done with these young people i really don't i do not believe that um and i you know what i i did some research i there was um that's a really, really funky, lost, haunted strip mall. The next time you come to Vegas, we've got to go there because whoever's still there will survive. It's a little bit ghost townish, but there's a Hispanic, full Spanish evangelical uh, church in one section, and there's a bar for total rehab. AA people. It's a non-bar. You know those those places. Mm -hmm. You go. Yeah. It looks like a bar, but it's not a bar. You know, and mm -hmm. they're doing good work. And there are a lot of hardcore bikers and you know people out there, and they're just you know everyone's covered in tats and they're they're smoking three cigarettes each, and but mm -hmm. they're staying clean, you know. And right. then two cop cars parked at the back, and but holding down the fort is a. Uh, a really lost in time sex shop, you know, and I like the gal who, who runs it. She's in her late fifties, kind of dumpy, but she'd probably be really fun actually. Uh, mm -hmm. But you know, she's selling lingerie and get up and gear for, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the down market people. And I said to her once, cause I, I had to, this is where uh, we shot some uh, stuff for the, for the film, for, for the humble assessment. So I knew her. And I happened to be in the neighborhood. I, I thought, I just like, let's say, you know, how Barb is doing. And Barb was there because she can't afford to hire anyone else. And I said, you know, just let me ask you, like, do you ever have any younger people come in for any of this stuff? Because you're selling it, you know, at a pretty affordable price. Mm -hmm. Oh. No, she goes, I don't know what's happening to women under 30. It's just, mm -hmm. it, it's nothing's, I mean, if you can't, if you can't afford this, I mean, maybe they're buying it online. You know, she said that is hitting our stuff, but I mean, I don't know. And, and I thought, well, maybe it's just that no one's buying it because they're not getting it on. I really do believe that. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure it's anecdotal. I know, but I'm just saying. You just reminded me of a story I have to tell you that does not relate directly to your point about young people not having sex. Uh, but I was looking for bookstores in the small town that I live in. And I found on Google this shop called Ingrid's Books. And I said to Rios, hey, do you want to check this out? It's a used bookstore. We might find something cool. And I did. When you walk into Ingrid's Bookstore, the first thing that you notice is a no one under 18 may enter sign. Okay. Unless accompanied by a guardian. Yeah. And we we walk in and it's this old strip mall, small town America. Everything smells like cat piss, dusty, gross, right? Dingy would be the word that I used. And I found a cool book. I found uh, The Glass Hammer by K.W. Jeter, which I had been looking for. And it was crazy to find 
The Glass Hammer by K.W. Jeter, which is hard to find online in this small nothing shop. But half the store is devoted to porn mags and sex toys, right? And so I, I poke Rios. I'm like, look, there's dildos and butt plugs and lingerie and and a rack of Playboys, Hustlers, and dirtier shit. And so I go to buy the glass hammer and I notice on the cash register, old school cash register, uh, the woman behind the counter who I have to assume is Ingrid, very old, in her 60s. Um, Friendly, nice. But I notice the sign on the cash register and it says, there is a 48-hour deadline to return the porn magazines they had a return policy <laughs> on the porn magazines <laughs> i th- i thought oh, you'd like dear. that oh dear okay well look on that note are we ready for my aphorism let's go let's do it all right osmos with the cosmos baby like that you will be socializing with the bureaucracy of ghosts cool i like the rhythm to it that's neat osmos with the cosmos what does that mean to you uh it means a return to uh some of the old stoner uh semantic frameworks of the past because i think they have a lot of just happy energy to them i Mm -hmm. i really do think that um i i i think our big thing is returning to some of you know and if people want to think of it as cliched uh aspects of the 70s I'm happy with that. I mean, mm-hmm. you weren't even, you know, really born yet. So I don't, you know, I, I think we're cool with that. I think we want a sex positive, uh, liberal interrogative, aware, counter scientism, humanist mystical framework moving forward that. I think is is possible to balance, you know, and I really do. And I think it's somehow embedded in some of that language. Uh, you know, I really believe in deep structure. I believe in I sentences. I mean, I no like one, I mean, who show me the person, show me the culture that invented the idea of a sentence. I don't think you can. I think that's a very, very strange idea. I think you can show the where the idea of a molecule or an atom. I think you can definitely trace the history of the notion of an equation, a basic, you know. I think you can show a lot of it, but I don't think you can really show clearly, you know, the definition of a sentence. I think that's a really weird idea. And so if you go back to those deep structures, and you say the musicality is the physics, is the metaphysics of something very deep, then you're tapping into some real original magic, you know? And mm-hmm. I like that stoner lingo. I, I I I do. I think some of the bro, you know, 
modern day stuff. I mean, it's interesting. Southern accents are disappearing. Linguists tell us this. The conventional accents, and not just Southern, but also New York to some extent, Boston, you know, and across England, accents are starting to really soften and kind of fade and mull and blur. And everyone is starting to talk more like 13-year-olds and black rappers. And uh, also, I mean, what does survive of white lingo is stoner surfer robe stuff, you know? But everyone starts talking like the Simpsons, you know? Yeah. And, and no one's talking like themselves. But right. I think that if we dig into the language, which is going to be, I mean, that's been one of our themes from the get-go. It's a clue to so much. It mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. I like that a lot. What is my imaginative challenge for today? All right. All right. Well, we are sending you back in time. Back to deal with a crisis moment in my life. Yes. But I think it is an actual well, it's, there's no question about this. It is an actual historical moment of strangeness that exists in time still. 1981, I was involved with my the woman who would become my first wife. Very, very bright woman but an immense and total psychotic. And I'm quite happy to say that. We were traveling across Canada in the strange zone of Saskatchewan, endless wheat fields and suddenly gorgeously colored silos emerging out of the nowhere i'm thinking this will appeal to your oklahoma instincts and your filmic your natural filmic instincts well we were in the midst of a tremendous crisis the beginning of a real revelation of serious serious mental illness in her case my re realization of that Meanwhile, a figure who is actually very, very real, you can Google on him, Lloyd Loomis, he was traveling across Canada with a giant cross on a wheel. And in swift current Saskatchewan, he met his wife-to-be on that trip. We were in Swift Current, Saskatchewan, at that exact moment. And two things happened. My girlfriend provoked a rather, well, in my view, it was somewhat serious, as in knives were drawn, bar fight. But also, as we were escaping 
there was a sign on a telephone pole, lost capybara, a South American pig form that was a pet of someone there, which didn't surprise me in the moment. So your theme here is to re resuscitate a lost experimental novel of mine called The Plot to Release Capybaras in Swift Current, Saskatchewan. You have a highly charged sexual romantic couple kind of on the verge of maybe a murder spree if the female were let fully loose. You've got a strange South American pig pet on the loose, and you've got a lunatic who has traveled from British Columbia and will end his journey in Cornerstone, Newfoundland, carrying or lugging, pulling, dragging a gigantic wooden cross on a wheel who meets his wife-to-be in that town at the exact moment. So it's a little bit of a movie. It's like a Robert Altman movie, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. All right, one note. You've got possible sex, murder, religion, strange mm -hmm. animals, weird symbols. And I would say there's also a great Chinese restaurant character who uh, has an artificial hand. It, and he claimed that he chopped his own hand off because of anger at his wife in swift current Saskatchewan where nobody's dreams come true. <laughs> awesome. All right, cool. Lots of good stuff there. Uh, your email to me begins as follows. Social issues notes. Based on a headline, and a one to two sentence overview plus seven keywords highlighted, the AI system I'm beta testing can't effectively distinguish content across these publications slash sources. The New Yorker, The New York Times, Harper's, The Atlantic, and NPR. Five years of material in play. The problem worsens when the AI is supplied with the full articles and only the names of the sources withheld. What we have is the same kind of Garmin Bosia liberal pablum in different containers, with the containers only different in name. This seems to me to relate to the algorithm problems we've noted underlying the major social media platforms. Uh, reference it, the, the recent critique of platform degeneration by Cory Doctorow. So first of all, I really like that you used Garmin Bosia because I feel like that should be a part of common parlance. That is, of yes, course, the yes, of course, it is the cream corn from Twin Peaks, but yes, it, it represents pain and sorrow, pain and sorrow. So Garmin Bosia is the the food stuff of demons who feast on pain basically yeah uh um 
Number two, a wide range of surveys and research studies of late indicate that women in the U.S. I like. I really like this point. Everybody strap in. Are becoming more decisively liberal, while men are skewing ever more conservative. Question: As this divide deepens or grows, at what point do the terms liberal and conservative lose primary meaning? Why don't we just say female male? If you can statistically predict political leanings based on gender, and gender is one of our biggest obsessions, why not just shorthand the politics into the rubric of gender, at least in statistical Vegas odds terms? I don't see that we lose any more nuance or spectrum of values in having a women's party and a men's party than we do with Democrat and Republican. Isn't the whole issue with an independent party and other alternatives a political analog to the gender identity slash fluidity stream? Isn't the clash divergence between men and women the problem that trumps race? And as we've spoken about, class can't even be fathomed. Ooh. I knew you'd like this. (laughs) I do like that. I told Are everybody you, to strap in, so you've yeah, been, you've, been, you've been forewarned. Well, I really appreciate that you seized on that because you know, I mean, part of the the, I don't know, I mean, we're we're just we're just experimenting and fooling around and crystal radioing in the garage, and we're throwing out ideas, and we want to be speculative and provisional where other people want to be rigid and, and, and just perhaps fossilized. But the idea I think is, you know, well, the deeper idea is, is what categories are determining our discussions. If you have a category distinction between liberal and conservative, okay. But if then you blur that into the gender distinction of female, male, well, my question is, which category distinction should really take precedence? And maybe we should be really thinking in terms of gender. I mean, what about a a women's party or a female party in America? I mean, wouldn't I frankly think, I I really, and I mean this, I don't mean this contentiously as it will sound, but I don't care totally because I do mean it. There are some very important uh, male figures in my sphere who are liberal in a way that inclines me fully to think the real goal is simply being accepted and palatable to women. I think that they have completely succumbed and really subsumed themselves to a female point of view for the strict purpose of being acceptable. I'm not going to say that is in the old conventional terms being pussy whipped, 
you didn't hear me say that. And yet, I really, really wonder uh, what the game is. <laughs> and yet, no, uh, sorry, please go on. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Well, you know, I mean, I, and I think that, that here's a good example. And I think this does extend. It ripples across some of these other categories, not just gender, but also race. You know, the idea is, well, someone will say, a male figure will say, I have no idea what it's like to be a female in today's society. Mm -hmm. Well, for starters, that is a nonsensical statement that doesn't need to be made. Of course you don't. But you could also say you really don't have much idea about what it's like to be anyone else. And also, mm -hmm. I'm not really mm -hmm. clear on how efficient you're going to be about really explaining your own personal position however you define that so it's just a it, it really is cliche upon cliche of obvious statement upon obvious statement and you re reduce to well no one really knows what anyone else walk a mile and so you know it's just yeah well just so what we end up with is the traffic view of society just don't crash the car. Just don't do anything that hurts anyone. And mm. just, you know, and we end up with this really, really pathetic, retarded idea of, well, non-criminality is all that really matters. Well, really, you know, David, frankly, my first thought is that that I, I want to support you. I don't want to shoot your head off. Yeah. You know? I mean, I hope that doesn't have to even be said. I mean, aren't I think people are basically good. And I think that's why we don't have more murder, more chaos, more mm -hmm. strangeness. Mm -hmm. I think all of this perspective is coming from the profound liberal cynicism about the nature of humanity. And I, I'm frankly just sick of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, if the baseline is that you just have, I, I see this a lot with kids too. Um, the idea that well, they're here, as though that's acceptable, as though just showing up is good enough, doesn't make any sense to me. But I do think that this harkens back to an early, early, our first real controversial episode where we talk about kindness. Mm. as a sort of insidious force in these discussions. And I think based on what you've said here, we're building on that. Whereas it's not just insidious, it's it's placating. The theme that I feel through what you're talking about is a placation. Mm. Uh, just, just don't make anybody mad. And the real juice there is that, well, but what if making people fucking angry is a good thing societally? Like what if it's good to be angry and have to process that anger in a, in an adult way? Because there's so much that I see every day when it comes to current events, 
where it really seems like nobody cares about getting to the truth of anything. It's about what, like what's okay to talk about. Don't hurt anybody's feelings. And I think you'll agree. We've seen people get more and more feral and rabid, the nicer and nicer the discourse has gotten. I don't think that's a coincidence. It's absolutely not a coincidence. So there are two things. One, well, certainly we copped a lot of flack for even suggesting that empathy is not necessarily a good universal policy. We said, Mm -hmm. and we followed a couple of major philosophers of our time, two of them women who are stepping outside the frame of of feminist thought and actually talking more universally that empathy on a personal level is one thing empathy on a social bureaucratic level is absolutely counter to the good it's counter to the good because it's not fair it's not Mm -hmm. it's not democratic it's overcommitted. It's wrong. It can't be sustained. There are all sorts of things wrong with it. And then when we talked about the whole Seattle kindness thing, we did offend a bunch of liberal people who really <laughs> seen above all else as being virtuous. And mm-hmm. we don't have an answer to that because we fundamentally don't believe they are more virtuous than you and I are. Mm-hmm. We think question the notion of virtue as a social goal but there's clearly a a personal problem in the pursuit of virtue that to be fair this is the great irony to be fair to these political bureaucratic figures who are in chairs of command and decision they're trying to do that and they can't because there are mm-hmm. too many audiences. There are too many special interests. You try to be virtuous to everyone and you will absolutely fail and probably mm-hmm. go out a window or be mm-hmm. burned alive or whatever. You're never going to do it. What we don't, what we need is more forceful, authentic, parental figures who go, no. We're not going to try to win all these wars. No, we're not going to try to be kind all the time. Kindness is not what we're doing. Not at the social bureaucratic level. We're not going to have 5,000 people camped out in Portland. In a, you know, we're going to, no, we're going to actually try to do something about it. Yeah. So I've... all of these things have got some real, uh, well, yeah. It comes down to being Mr. Osborne. I was about to say, we are locked in. We're on the same wavelength. You learn this when you become a teacher. Yeah. You have to sit these kids down and adults sometimes too. Because I have adult students with full face tattoos and say, this is not acceptable. And I'm not going to accept it. And I'm not joking. I want you to do this. You will either do this or you will fail. A lot of people don't know how to do that. I think a lot of teachers don't know how to do that either. 
I've discovered a lot of my fellow teachers, my fellow teachers have bean bags in their rooms and mood lighting and soft music. And if you want to sleep through class, it's okay. You know, I have one of those guns. It's the bean bag projectile gun. <laughs> you know, remember no, my salt but, gun? You remember my salt gun? Yeah. I saw my salt gun. Yeah. Well, David, I mean, I think what we're really look, let's be really very, very crude, simple. There mm -hmm. is an absence of male authority driving our entire culture that everyone is desperate for. And we are sick and tired of uh, it's not even a liberal political position it's just people who are so wimpy they can't be authoritative mm -hmm. figures when mm -hmm. that is what the younger people expect they're crying out for mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah they they i have noticed because i've gotten tougher in this second semester and it is night and day how these kids react to me. So they've always been friendly towards me, but I'm the fucking captain now. And they look at me, they look to me for guidance. What do I do? When do I have to have it done? And then I tell them what they need to do. And when they fuck up, I don't let them off the hook. I have 20 you know kids right now with Fs because we only have three grades and some of them haven't turned in one assignment and if you didn't do great on the two that you turned in and you have a zero for the third you're failing i had a girl come into my class today crying saying like please i have i i cannot be failing i'll get kicked out of my club and i told her there will be more assignments do better on those it's tough but What's she going to do in the real world, man? Like, well, is the real world going to tell her that, oh, okay, I'll fix it for you? No. You know, you got to put people on the spot and you mm -hmm. got to find people who want to be put on the spot. A few years back, I had this really, really desperate class of some serious, serious criminalized gangsters, you know, people who were they were one step away from disappearing finally into the system. They had records. They were going to just get absorbed into that whole deal. And uh, I, I was thinking to myself, you know, I, I got to get on top of this right from the get-go. Mm -hmm. And I'm in theater. So mm -hmm. I went to uh, my, my uh, I have a, you know, pawn shop, so network of Las Vegas people. And I got myself a nice, gold bar mm -hmm. you have all the gold bar it's a beautiful thing. i haven't no i haven't held oh, an actual gold bar oh they're, well they're small but they're really sensuous they're really really satisfying and they're heavy i actually per aesthetically like silver more but gold is of course worth more but i had this thing and uh there was this huge huge black dude I mean, he was, he had 120 pounds on me. And uh, Raymond. Uh, Raymond La Rosa or something like that. And, uh, but they were all gangsters and thugs in this class. And that was the deal. And uh, 
because it was outside UNLV. It was it was part. It was for the state. These were these were potentially irredeemably young people, and uh, I said, I took out this gold bar. And I plonked it on the table, and it makes a hell of a fucking sound. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's fucking real. Mm -hmm. And I looked at this, the you know, the biggest dude, and I said, Raymond, I've got to go out and take a couple of emergency phone calls. I want you to see how this gold bar is sitting on the table. I'm putting you in charge. I want to make sure that gold bar hasn't moved even a fraction of an inch and that this writing assignment has been completed to the best of everyone's ability in the 15 minutes I'm going to be gone. And I walked out of the room and you know what? Mm -hmm. That gold bar had not moved one fucking millimeter, and mm -hmm. everybody had their writing assignment. It was crude and scrawled, and they were just, you know, mm -hmm. you know, they had no idea, some of them, but everybody had their thing. And Raymond opened the door for me and had them all like a co-teacher. Mm -hmm. I could say like a bitch, but I, I would really mm -hmm. rather think of it more positively as just a real good lieutenant. No, because you you became yeah, you became the captain and you had your, your lieutenant. And it is yeah, amazing. It all as soon as you inhabit hand. that role, as soon as you inhabit that role, people line up to that role because there's something to not all hierarchy, but that particular hierarchy. People these people like They've been talking about the lost generation since the 60s, right? And it's that word, lost. All they need – a lot of these people joined the military. A lot of them joined different organizations that gave them the structure that they needed. But you talk often about my, my burgeoning cult leader status. You begin to realize that it's not about the manipulation and the crazy Charles Manson eyes. It's literally – about providing nuts on the table structure to their yeah, lives. No, look, no, I'm totally. I, I think you're on to that. I think you're on to that in your your fatherhood and your teaching and the larger cultural idea that we all need structure and we all also are responsible for providing a degree of structure. We do mm -hmm. not. I think this is where the cult leader captaincy hierarchy problem falls apart because people then think oh rank and file soldier you know no mm -hmm. it, there isn't just the chain of command that makes you another cog in the wheel and all of those cliches it activates you as a a part of a team part of a semantics Mm -hmm. part of a, a a culture an ecosystem of meaning mm -hmm. and it, you have a absolutely crucial responsibility in a co-teaching sense in that you know and i think this is where we need better co-teachers 
and or, or with teachers with your attitude like mine of promoting co-teaching, promoting participation, promoting uh, a more spiral version of hierarchical mm -hmm. understanding. Mm -hmm. But there is a there is a chain of command. There mm -hmm. is. Absolutely. Chain absolutely. spiral. They, yeah, sure. Of course they can. Yeah, they absolutely can. So you have, um, I'm looking at the time here. Do you have a big tool tip and dream? I'm I'm just doing some time management here for how much we can get to in the main. Okay. Body. Okay. Well, there is a really uh, large um, program that we haven't gotten to, which is a good start for our big picture idea of 2024. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just um, summarize it briefly because I, I did get, I, I provided David with, with a lot of different notes here. And we're just, mm -hmm. we're, this is a building thing in progress. So we know listeners will be patient, but what we have to look forward to is the larger issue of signal versus noise. Mm -hmm. And, the heading that I provided him with, which will be kind of an ongoing starting point for next time and, and many issues, re-seeing logos and mythos as numeros and hypnos. We've got some really big things. The note is very cool. The note is very, listeners, the note is very cool. You're going to want to tune in next week because this is uh, it's meaty. There's a lot to talk about with this. In fact, I, eh, yeah, every paragraph I feel like we could really dig into. So we'll get to that. Yeah, thank you. I I, I think it's a good sort of sketch out of of kind of where we're going in in. 2024 it, it really it's a build on everything that we've been doing from the get-go uh a return to study of indigenous people outsider artists insane people the questions of official you know belief versus unofficial which is one of the great anthropological ideas connotative sort of denotative versus understandings a lot of stuff going on but um well, here's my tool. Oh, this do you want my do, do you want my challenge first? Oh, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, sorry. We, yeah. we do actually. Yeah, we might. <laughs> I uh. <laughs> no, no, no. It's totally fine. I'm I'm anxious to hear it, but I'll 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 make this quick. Um. No, no, so don't, don't don't go to. All right, I'll I'll take my time. Saskatchewan. Then. You Let's are go. Saskatchewan. I'm, I'm in Saskatchewan. Of course, the name of this has to be Swift Current. Swift Current has to be the name. The theme of this movie is people crossing on the way up and the way down. And oh, meeting. yeah, 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 yeah. You got it. The cross. So we would start off this film with, which I'm envisioning it as a film, uh, with the beautiful landscape of this Canadian environment but only beautiful when witnessed through the windows of a car. Right. So Chris and your first wife, the only time we see how truly beautiful it is, it's through the window of a car. When we cut 
to the cross bearer, it's brutal. He's struggling. He's yeah. uh, being accosted by animals. People are throwing uh, empty beer cans at him from moving trucks. This dichotomy between how pretty this landscape can be through the safety of a you know a sedan window, and when you're actually on the street carrying something heavy, the wheel breaks on his cross. At the same time that the wheel blows out on the car. We will see those cutting together. So they both have to stop in swift current. They stop at the same diner where the Chinese man with the fake hand has drilled a strange stigmata into his prosthesis. There's a hole in the hand. We see that in the diner, what's up? I love when you do this shit. This is- <laughs> uh, in the diner, we see a strange kind of play. This is how I would write it. Most of the film, this would be low budget, so it could all take place in this diner. We see a kind of play in which we see the degeneration of one relationship and the building of another. Chris's story involves discovering uh, slowly at first and then all at once that the woman he's with is psychotic the woman also realizes that chris is not going to save her from her psychosis which is important because we also see a waitress character who begins to believe that the cross bearer sipping endless coffees will save her so we again it's that balance right she begins to think this guy can get me out of here he really believes in something whereas the other story is going the opposite direction. We begin to see the dissolving couple is three-dimensional and see troubling hints of how much this new other burgeoning couple is trying to cover up their flaws. Through that contrast, we begin to see them as human. They fix their wheels, but at the end of their incendiary conversation, Chris's ex tries to kill him with a knife in the diner the waitress saves him while the cross bearer has opted to cash out focused solely on continuing his journey of self-flagellation he's already well down the road chris's ex stabs the waitress steals her keys and runs chris is busy helping the waitress to keep the blood from pumping out of her wound but he can't stop the ex from jumping in the waitress's car and peeling out of the diner. The ex runs the crossbearer down on the road <laughs> in a huge explosion of gore. And when that happens, the last thing I'd want to focus on, the last shot, the Chinese waiter's prosthetic hand stigmata begins to bleed. Oh. Oh, David, we've got to get you a budget. <laughs> we've just got to find a way to, you know, I really do think that, you know, I think we're doing this a little bit too innocently. I think we need to really start thinking about Hollywood vigorously, low budget, strangeness, broken river, uh, all of our shit, just bringing it forward into 
a, a new pop mythos because I, I, I think that that just is, well, it, for starters, it's a really good feel for landscape and setting, which is really important to me. I always think setting is, is character first. I never Mm-hmm. think Mm-hmm. backdrop. And I think that Oklahoma, where you live, Nevada, where I live, and Saskatchewan, where this is, are all so vigorous landscapes that they are characters, you know, from a, from a really basic writing point of view. But I think we must get this stuff happening. And I, I think that you, you really should be doing, uh, I don't know, I would love to see you direct a, a really strange uh, new age road movie, you know, and I want to be in it and part of it. And Mm I -hmm. well love I have cool I have cool news for you after we stop recording on that note Okay. but what is your tool and tip for the day All right. Well, you know, I'm a big fan of analogies. And I think that creating good analogies uh, is really helpful. Uh, and But oftentimes, I think that that's not creating them. It, it's just recognizing them from your life. And I, I want to put forward the idea of the Harari main market as an analogy. Harare, as some people may know, is a city of 2 million people, the capital of Zimbabwe, formerly Rhodesia. Uh, you can shoot, uh, as in photographically render the city and, and make it look like a technological, you know, modern city. Uh, you can also review its colonial past, its beautiful architecture. Uh, but it doesn't take much to find some real squalor and shanty town township uh problems uh it, it is a very conflicted nation still and that's not going away it's had a, a really unfortunately rich history of dictatorship since independence it's not an easy place even though it has some wonderful people some beautiful wildlife nearby, so many good things to say about it. But squalor, crime, chaos, none of those things are far away, and they also can't be discounted, certainly not for a moment if you, if you live there. But one morning I went to the main market, and I think we're all aware whether we've traveled the world or not, we can accept a certain level of chaos with markets, whether they be in the Hong Kong or the Philippines or New Guinea. I mean, okay, you can, you know, chicken heads, uh, snakes, fried insects, strange stuff going on, uh, yelling, uh, haggling. You know, it, it's not like going to an American supermarket. We get that. But... At the time I was there, uh, the government shut off the water. So there was no, not only no fresh water, there was no running water. Mm. There was also no power. Now, you can deal with that on a small scale market or really, you know, maybe traditional markets in, I don't know, places like Morocco, certain parts of Mexico, you know, all over the world, if you're, if that's the gig 
But this is the main metropolitan market that is really like a shopping mall, not like a Casbah market sort of situation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, all of the all of the utilities get shut off. And more importantly, there is no national currency. Mm. Okay. So I my question is. I was there at four o'clock in the morning. I left at four o'clock in the afternoon. And what are the infrastructures that determine social conduct if it's not about water, electricity, an agreed upon currency? I mean, you can run that on a smaller scale of, of chaos mm -hmm. around the world. Mm -hmm. But I don't think you can do that in a national capital uh, that has pretensions to being a new age city and have it work out very well. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I'm here to tell you, there were some outbreaks of violence, frustration. Um, there were some moments of tension. There was, you know, it, it was a, a, it was a thing. But yet on the other hand, what I noticed was harmony, mm -hmm. balance, mm -hmm. order. Mm -hmm. What I what I think I saw was a deeper algorithm of social coherence that defied all of the government, political, economic, and uh, physical science categories. I mean, Water is as basic as it gets. I mean, that's mm -hmm. not really that scientific. That's pretty much fundamental to survival. How people managed the coherence of trading and engagement with as little violence, as little ultimate collapse of coherence was remarkable to me. And I felt like I glimpsed one of the hidden algorithms of social organization that is something that it was very profound. It was very, it crossed all of the levels that we are so conflicted by in the West today, male, female. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, I mean, there are a lot of unprotected women how many were there no sexual assaults on the day that I'm talking about? Well, I'm not saying there weren't because I wasn't a pro it's a big market space, mm -hmm. but I think it was pretty well behaved. What about race? Well, I'm white. I'm the only, I, I thought I was the only white person walking around. Did anyone kill me? No, mm -hmm. I don't think I would have been that content around the Chicago loop or in parts of St. Louis or Detroit. Right. Right. I see where you're going. Yep. Uh, I, I, I saw a tremendous balance. I saw a tremendous desire for a kind of deep social coherence that was beyond all law, beyond all utility supply, beyond all government loyalty, and without the framework of an agreed upon economy. Mm-hmm. And I think that we are in the business, you and I are in the business of finding hidden algorithms and, and really looking for the deep ones that matter, whether they be in language 
or dreaming or expressed physical culture. And I think that that was a good example of something that was really, really working. So my tool is look for examples of coherence on any scale. This was fairly large. This is a major, you know, national mm -hmm. capital city. But look for examples of coherence that defy the basic structures of politics, law, and economics. And you will see more agreement between people than you know. And I think that you will find a way back to uh, not a naive optimism at all, but I think a very structured, practical optimism. Because I don't think those people were all going, let's be kind. That mm -hmm. was thing. Mm -hmm. They were mm -hmm. yelling and shouting and stamping and women with big butt. I mean, African women, big butt, you know, African mm -hmm. men, power, you know, there was a lot of potentials for violence and physicality and stuff. They weren't trying to be kind in that Seattle way. They were mm -hmm. trying to be coherent. Mm. Don't be kind, be coherent. I like that. So that's 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 my tool. Um, and I think that, that if we look for these models, we will find them. You know, we do end up finding what we look for. We really do. Um, but I, I think it's. Um, no, I love that. I love that. Uh, you know, this idea of a kind of breakdown in infrastructure. Because we're inundated with images of, you know, the walking dead, mm. which it has to be a psyop. It has to be this idea that, oh, if the government collapses, all chaos is sure to break loose. Will it? Will it really? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, well, you know, maybe we just overemphasize the power of chaos. I mean. You know, that's the other thing that annoys me. I mean, how interesting is chaos? I mean, it, it mm -hmm. isn't very interesting, is it? No. It just, it's just total mayhem that yeah. would probably resolve itself, you know, from an alien invasion point of view. Let's look at that. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going we're gonna to throw humanity into a zombie apocalypse. We're going to turn off all of their machines and make total darkness. And then we're going to pick up the pieces in three weeks to five weeks time and see who's still standing. Mm -hmm. Well, I think a lot of us would still be standing, actually. Yeah. I think we're not giving ourselves enough credit. And I don't think that, that I think most of us think that chaos is kind of boring. Mm -hmm. You know, you just put something in my head and I do want to hear your tip, but we often think of the primary uniqueness of humanity as its imagination. And that's certainly a component, but I'm thinking of the word resilience. We're an incredibly resilient species. And I really like that. And I wish we saw more of that in pop culture not this whole degeneration of society 
like we show resilience as, you know, one person out of 300 million who managed to get it together and survive in a wasteland. But what if it's reversed? What if everything collapsed and people just kind of kept it going? I don't think we have enough appreciation of our ingenuity. And I think that the, the neo-Marxist program of oppressors versus oppressed mm -hmm. is such a distraction mm -hmm. from the great totally. genius that has made existence possible at all. Yep. Yep. You know, and the, you know, it's the totally it, wrong way to look at things, oppressors and oppressed. It's, well, and it's not saying that it's not real. It's just that it's the wrong framework to see how this all works. Well, it doesn't hold up when you look at great, great cultures that are not any, well, for instance, the Mayans and the Aztecs. Mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I mean, the neo-Marxist academics of today have a real problem when they run up against those cultures. Mm -hmm. They can't really deal with them because there's a lot of pride in the ingenuity, the social engineering, the construction of immense cities in jungle environments that are really, really difficult. I mean, actually, that is a really, really great test of the white and black. Mm-hmm liberal academic position today is to really look deeply at Mayan and Aztec culture. I don't think that I don't think their value systems and beliefs look look very good. And I think they have a lot of conflict with it. They only like it when white people come in and then, you know, cause havoc. Easy uh, bad, the easy bad guy. Yeah. 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 I, I I just but you know none of this is Nothing is easy. Who, whoever said humanity and evolution and development was was easy and and fair? Fair, you know. In my my fifty two words away, the most contentious first word is fair. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at that very very seriously, um, but uh, okay. God, we got so many. We always have so many good things to uh, to talk about. Um, yeah, I'm hyped. This is a this is my favorite episode in a long time. So I'm I'm all amped. What's your tool for today? Okay, I'm going to leave us with a, a simple sort of notion of. Um, I was thinking about how AI may bring back the power of, of physical illustration in commercial terms, advertising, book publishing, you know, just the, I, I, I my grandfather was a, a commercial illustrator. I've been reviewing that, that art form, which I think we take for granted. It's a little bit like reappreciating pulp writers, and, and the jobbing writers of TV and realizing that there are some really great people who maybe we, we don't, you know, they won't win Nobel prizes, you know, and they yeah. might not win Pulitzer prizes, 
but they're actually really good, talented people. And that made me think of my old favorites of the Hardy Boys. And I, I went and reviewed some of the beautiful illustrations that featured in that great series, which was a complete uh, factory system of entertainment. Mm -hmm. And the writers involved felt very conflicted about the material they were creating, but they got paid just like my grandfather. He paid his family's debts, you know, through the depression and world war two, you know, you put food on the table any way you can creatively. But one of the lines in describing the uh, Hardy Boys cover designs was peering at danger, which I think is a lovely idea. And it made me think about the word danger. And this is, again, a very simple idea. If you look into the etymology of the word danger, what you find is a peculiar uh, angle, tonally. I mean, I think of like maybe a, a big-ass grizzly bear or some gangsters with face tattoos and automatic weapons or a cyclone or a whole bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. That's not what the etymology of the word danger actually suggests. It suggests lordship, political power, social human control. It suggests exactly what the neo-Marxists suggest that is, is inherent in all of human society, that all we want to do is get someone down and butt fuck the living hell out of them and make them be our slaves. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's a very healthy or uh, magical notion of where danger lies, because I, I see a, a, a white rapid river as mm -hmm. being plenty dangerous. Mm -hmm. I've seen a really calm lagoon of hippos erupt, and there's nothing more dangerous than a hippopotamus. Oh, yeah. want you there, you know? And I think that that what we need to do is reinstate the beauty and magic of danger. Mm -hmm. Danger is a lovely thing. It gets us hot, gets us hard, gets us wet, gets us scared. And mm -hmm. it really needs to be treated as a sacred moment of psychic experience. And it's not this notion of being lorded over by people with more money or more bureaucratic. Mm. I mean, how many interesting people are ever care about that? We go fuck off. We don't, we're not really interested in it. That's fucking cool. The, the re assessment of danger as not a kind of uh, serfdom where you're worried that the Lord's going to come around and steal your wife and take your shit and and lord their power over you but rather you are deep in a valley and you're shining your flashlight up to a haunted house on a cliff that's the danger that we're talking about adventure risk 
a kind of danger that you'd actually want to be a part of. I wonder if we couldn't figure out a different word for that other kind of danger. I think that's our challenge. I think we must. Yeah. Because I feel like these are two different things. Well, see, this is so essential to the whole memory and alertness book. And I think our larger challenge is that we need new words. We need new categories. We need to break with the static frameworks that we've inherited because they're not helpful. Mm -hmm. They're just not helpful. Yeah. I think that's a good instinct, David. I really do. Yeah. Uh, how have, have the dreams been? Okay. Well, I had a really, um, I had a profound image-based dream of uh, a kind of modernist building that was completely dark. So we're talking like a big sort of cube in some sort of office park. And what I guess would be fluorescent light panels within the building turning on or clicking and I was struggling for the verb because it just popped on with certain rhythms. And that was a model of how thinking works. And I woke up with this idea, if I could only remember the sequence in which the lights came on. There was another dream, which I really liked. And it was a potential band name called uh -huh. words that appeared were bleeding plumber mm -hmm. and furry notebooks. But the dream that I took away, and I hope this, uh, you know, she may hear this, but I think we have to share what we share. Um, I was uh, engaged in deep oral sex with Lisa. Mm -hmm. And it was absolutely a thriving, wonderful experience. And out of her, she's just gorgeously female shaped. She's just, for me, in my, I, I just, it's just, I'm sure other women are. I know, I've known many other women who have been, but I just liked the particular of it. But, out of her gorgeous, wet vagina appeared a kind of a book. But it didn't have... Well, it was kind of an oval shape, I suppose you'd have to say, to kind of emerge from the birth canal. It was certainly not rectangular or square. It was smooth-edged. And it had a kind of opalescent cover to it. And it like was a, both like a black mirror. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was a really satisfying uh, thickness. You know, like you get a sandwich, you know, people make hamburgers that are too big or sandwiches that are too big. And you just think, uh, but if you're really hungover, like, 
at you know three o'clock in the morning and you somehow get a beautiful i don't know like a really simple like grilled cheese sandwich or and it's just a satisfying there was something profoundly satisfying about it and i didn't want to open it up because it was so satisfying to hold and she was sort of orgasmically sort of kind of collapsed kind of just letting me have a moment with this treasure and it wasn't clear that 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 treasure was anything that she was aware of at all i think this was this would have been a surprise to her too but i opened it and a feather wafted out and i heard a very distinct sound. It was like someone running a spoon across the bars in a jail, but with a real sense of melody. You know, someone who actually knew what they were doing and the tone changed across the sound. And I turned the page because there was a page after that. So the music, the feather, and I looked at the words and I couldn't bring myself to focus on them because I was so excited by the typography that was like something that I'd never seen before. It was like <clears throat> beautiful, um, you know, like beautiful wooden hair clips from Polynesia made into a hieroglyphic system. Mm -hmm. and, and looking a little bit, it was kind of, it was a hieroglyphic sort of system, but I seemed to understand it in the moment. And it was like three lines and it just looked so beautiful. It really, it looked feminine. It looked masculine. It looked earthy and human. And it just looked like some message that, uh, well, isn't easily summarized. That's cool. I like that one. There's a lot to unpack there. What we touched on, the shape of the of the book, this new language made out of Polynesian hair clips is very intriguing to me. Um, the fact that you are the... that you are performing the oral sex in the dream seems significant too. Mm. Um, because, uh, you know, I mean, when you're given head, it's kind of cool and you're still kind of in control, even though you're giving something to another person. Right. Mm. And the idea that something is being given to you back while you're doing that is very intriguing, very intriguing. Indeed. This has been, uh, my favorite episode in quite some time i'm excited to put it out cool 
but well, I think we'll close think it there. Setting new standards, and uh, I really, I, I just always appreciate your input. I, I thank you for taking me back to Swift Current, Saskatchewan, <laughs> and beyond. We have I, to make Swift Current into a movie. Oh, and you have to be in the movie. Oh, we're gonna, look, we're I, gonna we're gonna switch the race of the Chinese restaurant guy and make you the dude with the prosthetic hand. And I want some uh, in the movie. I want two interludes to separate the three acts of you playing a steel drum with prosthetic hands. There you go. Yeah. Uh, well, you know what? I have a weird, I haven't done this, but I think we could do it very quickly. You know, if, if we drew a triangle between my house in Boulder City, your house in Oklahoma, and Swift Current, Saskatchewan, I think we'd get a very interesting triangle. It would. Yeah. Kind of a scalene type deal. Yeah. With that. Um, thanks, everybody. Thank you so much. We will be back with more strangeness. I've got an absolute ball terror, as the Australians say. Imaginative challenge for David next time. And we, yeah, we just enjoy your company. And thank you for listening. Thanks, everybody.